would you ever lick your TV screen? What about your phone or tablet? Last year, a Japanese inventor developed a prototype lickable TV screen that can imitate food flavors. The device is called Taste the TV, or TTTV for short. It uses a carousel of 10 flavor canisters to create the taste of a particular food. The flavor sample then rolls on a hygienic film over a flat TV screen for the viewer to try. In a recent interview, the inventor said, quote, the goal is to make it possible for people to have the experience of something like eating at a restaurant on the other side of the world, even while staying at home. The inventor went on to say that he built the TTTV prototype himself over the past year, and he said that a commercial version would cost about $875 to make. And get this, he also hopes to make a platform where tastes from around the world can be downloaded and enjoyed by users much like music is now. A lickable, tasteable TV. What do you think? Would you give it a try? No, no, okay. <laughs> now, now, okay. Just, just, just slow your roll here for a second. Let me, let me give you a scenario. What if, imagine this with me, it's late at night and you're craving chocolate. But alas, no chocolate is in your home. Yet what just happens to be in your home is one of those taste the TV TVs. Are you telling me that in that night, in the cover of darkness, with that strong craving to have chocolate, and there's no chocolate in your house, but there is that TV, are you telling me you wouldn't give it a lick to satisfy the deep chocolate craving? <laughs> uh -huh. Okay, well, I guess we're pretty solid, solid on this matter. Now, you do have to admit, though, it's a pretty unique invention, right? In fact, I think I could see it selling quite well here in the States. Yet, as helpful as that TV might be in satisfying your chocolate cravings, you couldn't live off that TV, right? I mean, you couldn't feed a family, let alone yourself, right? And why is that? Is it not because, although you could taste, you wouldn't be fed? That is, from that TV, there's, yeah, you could taste something, but there's no nutrition for you to live, right? This is to say, to truly live, to truly thrive, 
You just can't have your taste buds tickled. No, you need something more. Let me ask you another question. What do you think is needed not simply to live, but flourish? I'm not, I'm not speaking about your physical health here. No, for every aspect of your life, your marriage, your family, your job, your friendships, all areas of your life, what do you think is the key ingredient for you to truly flourish? Faith, I, I don't think I'm overselling this. I really don't. But I believe our text this morning answers that very question. And the reason why I don't think it's an overstatement is because of the language that is intentionally used in our passage this morning. So if you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 23. This morning we're going to be looking at just the first seven verses. That's page 275 in that paperback Bible. On October 14th, 1977, entertainer Bing Crosby played a round of golf with his friends at a very exclusive club in Madrid. And immediately after the round, while he was walking off the 18th green, Bing Crosby turned to his friends and he said, quote, that was a great game of golf, fellas. And a moment later, he collapsed and died of a heart attack on the 18th green. His statement, that was a great game of golf, fellers, has become his famous last words. Thomas Jefferson revealed his passion for America by fighting to stay alive until the 4th of July. He was very, very sick. And you know what his last words were? It was actually a question. His last words were, is it the 4th? And upon hearing that it was, he then closed his eyes in death on July 4th, 1826. Well, our text this morning records another set of famous last words. However, these are not the last words that Dave ever spoke, kind of like that of Bing Crosby and Jefferson. No, those last words, his literal last words, are recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 2 when David gave private instructions to King Solomon. Instead, what we have in our passage this morning, 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 7, is David's final public statement. And as we're about to see, these aren't really the words of David, but rather they're the words of God. And in this oracle of David, I want to argue this morning that we find the key ingredient 
for you and I to flourish in this life. So follow along with me in your copy of God's Word as I read 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. Okay, David, what word is that of the Lord that's on your tongue? He says, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, and this is the word that God spoke to David. He says this, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. Now, let me just pause here for a second. David, now, he's speaking of a future perfect king. He's describing a future perfect king. And I want you to notice the effect of this just and God-fearing king. Notice the imagery that David is going to use in the following verse about this just God-fearing king. It's flourishing language. Notice what he says. Beginning in verse 3, back up. When, the one, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. It's flourishing language, is it not? Then notice what he says in verse 5. For does not my house, the Davidic house, stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? You know what David is saying here in verse 5? He's saying that this perfect king that is described in verse 3, this God-fearing just ruler, this perfect king will come from David's household. Why? It's not because of anything David has done, but as David makes very clear there in verse 5, it's because of the everlasting covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. So, David speaks of this just coming king who when he comes, there's going to be flourishing to people. But you need to notice this flourishing is exclusive. It's not for everyone. That is, it will only come to certain people. Well, notice what he finishes with. Judgment will fall on others. Look at what he says next. Notice how David continues with this garden imagery. Verse 6, he says, but worthless men, or rebellious men, more literally, 
are like thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. In his book, Starstruck, Christian astronomer Dr. David H. Bradstreet, he makes a very interesting observation about dandelions. Listen to what he writes. He says, our planet is home to some 10 to 14 million species of living things. Consider the lowly dandelion found on all the Earth's continents. These tenacious plants seem to flourish anywhere and everywhere, particularly where fussy gardeners wish they wouldn't. He goes on. Dandelion flower heads are perfectly designed for maximum seed creation and dispersal. Each yellow flowering head can disperse 50 to 175 seeds to the winds. One single dandelion plant can create more than 2,000 seeds. Now, I don't know about your yard, but I find these statements to be true. Anyone else? But, but notice carefully what he sec- says. Oops. Oh, back, back. There you go. Notice carefully what he says. He says, found on all the earth's continents. He states that dandelions are found everywhere on the earth. That is, they seem to flourish no matter their location. Well, in the passage I just read, we learn how we can do the same. That is, we discover what is necessary for you and me to flourish in any circumstance. And did you catch what the answer was? It's by submitting to God's king. You see, faith, this oracle of David communicates an important truth, and that is, Flourishing, genuine, true flourishing is found in submission to God's king. Flourishing is found in submission to God's king. Or to put it more succinctly, to flourish, submit to God's king. Notice, David in this oracle, he contrasts two groups of people, doesn't he? There are those who sprout and grow, those who thrive under the life-giving light of the dawning sun. And then there are those who are thrown away and consumed with fire. So why does one group flourish and the other group get destroyed? 
Well, the answer is found in verse 6. Notice the group that is consumed with fire is described as worthless, evil, or literally, as some of your versions have it, sons of rebellion. That is the reason why they are consumed. The reason why they are not flourishing is because they rebel against God's king. This is why they are destroyed, notice, with the shaft of a spear. In contrast, the other group in verse 4 flourishes, don't they? They're not destroyed like a weed, but rather they are nourished and sprout like grass. You see, notice, the righteous king He's a gardener, isn't he? He's described as a gardener here. He causes one group to sprout like grass, while the other, with an instrument, a rod of iron, he weeds out. Please hear me, Faith. The contrast in this passage is not between a good ruler and a bad ruler. No, the contrast is between two different responses to God's king. The grass-thorn comparison makes this abundantly clear. And based on the destruction of the rebellious group, the more than implied implication, more than implied implication, is that the flourishing group are those who submit to this God-fearing king. In Faith Community Church, what the New Testament makes abundantly clear is that this king has arrived and his name is Jesus. In faith, this passage is pressing upon our hearts a really important truth, one that is echoed throughout the pages of Scripture, and it's a truth we ought not to ignore. And that is true flourishing in your life, true flourishing in my life, only comes when we submit to the reign and rule of Lord Jesus in every aspect of our lives. Now, this challenged me this week because <laughs> I don't know about you, but I often want to be the ruler of my own life. Amen, somebody? Is it not true, and maybe it's just me, but I think we all on some level, we want to be the one who's calling the shots in our families, in our workplaces, in our marriages. Indeed, and this is a temptation that I can often fall into, I can believe the lie that if only things were done my way, if only things were done the way I wanted, then I would be happy, then I would flourish. Friend, this passage stands in direct opposition to that way of thinking. You know what being our own king is like? You know what it's like? It's like licking a TV screen for sustenance. It might taste good in the moment, and the moment the thought, yeah, I'm going to take control. I'm going to work to make everything go my way. It might taste good in the moment, but over the long haul, it will lead you to death because it lacks nourishment. So it is when we try to be the own kings of our lives. 
And I wonder how often we as God's people can buy into this lie that I will only flourish when everything goes according to the way I want my kingdom to be. Have you ever bought into that lie? And, and not to be funny, but I wonder how many of us, how often I am licking the TV screen. So what I want to do this morning is look carefully at the metaphor David employs in this passage because this has been my prayer for us as a church this week that we might deeply believe that true flourishing only comes from submission to God's king. And the text, based on the metaphor, gives three powerful reasons why we ought to submit to God's king. And the first is this, and that's because he brings life. Look again at verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel, we've been talking about that the last two weeks, right? Has said to me, speaking of this future king, filled in Jesus Christ, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, notice the effect, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. I don't think this metaphor was given just to fill space. I believe God wants us to really meditate upon all the implications of what this text is saying. And by using the sun analogy, he's clearly saying God's king brings life. As some of you might know, my sweet and lovely wife, she loves gardening. But not only does she love gardening, she also loves houseplants. Well, several years ago, a little bit more than several years ago, Stephanie bought a mass cane plant. This was when we were living in our other house, a mass cane plant, which was inconveniently placed right next to our bed. In fact, it was so close to our bed that every time my wife got out of bed, it sounded like she was making her way through the Amazon rainforest as she brushed past its massive big leaves. Now, as you might be able to tell from the tone of my voice, I was not really thrilled with this plant being so close to our bed. Did you pick up on that, anyone? So why did we place it there so close to our bed? We did so because that's where our window was. You see, if that plant didn't receive sunlight, it would die. And in many ways, that's true of every living thing on this planet, is it not? Just think about it. The sun is literally the source of all of life. I mean, if the sun went out, we'd all freeze to death. Or even if the sun was just obscured behind a cloud for months at a time, let alone a year, we would all die because of lightlessness. All plants would die and the food chain would fall apart. The sun literally, does it not, give us life. And that's the same point David is making about God's king in this verse. For notice how the king is described. Look again at there, verse 4. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. 
As several commentators have pointed out, this passage draws upon Genesis 1.16, which states that God created two great lights. Remember this? God created the greater light to govern the day and the lesser nights to, gov to govern the what? The night. The sun governs the day, and a good king governs like the sun. That is, he brings life. And this isn't the only place we see this metaphor being used in Scripture to compare God's perfect and righteous king like a son. Malachi picks this up in Malachi 4.2. Listen to what he says. But for you who fear my name, notice the echoes of you're submitting to him. You're following him. You fear him. For those who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And hence the title of the sermon and the line from the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sings. Jesus is the righteous king who brings life. And the application for us this morning is simply this, and that is, do I believe that? Do I believe that true life only comes from him? Do I look to Christ as my source of life, or do I look to some other God's substitutes? Our king brings life. The most important life he brings is eternal life, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But then second, we're to submit to God in order to flourish because notice he brings growth. Look at the second half of verse 4. So at the beginning of verse 4, he says, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth, and then he compares the king to something else. Notice, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. He brings growth. I recently came across this headline, and maybe you've seen it. Tesla setting lets you drive like a jerk. Anybody see this? According to multiple news outlets, Tesla's latest full self-driving software now lets you decide how much of a jerk you want to be on the road. The full self-driving software lets you choose between three driving profiles that dictate how the car will react to certain situations on the road. Each mode varies in aggressiveness and potential safety. And those three modes are, these are their names, chill, average, and assertive. Or, as those who tested the assertive mode had said, it should be better renamed jerk. <laughs> what setting would you choose? <laughs> Be honest. <laughs> now, regardless of what setting you choose, if you were to own a Tesla and do that, regardless of what setting you choose, Tesla is the one defining the terms, aren't they? That is, once you get in that car, 
Tesla is the one deciding, they are deciding what it means to be aggressive, average, or chill. Not you. Notice, God's king is described like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. The point is, and it's not hard to see, that God's king brings growth. But faith, here's the important truth we need to understand. And that is, what this passage illustrates and what the rest of scripture clearly teaches is that God is the one who defines what it means to flourish, not us. That is, he is the one who determines what growth and flourishing actually looks like, not us. You see, most often, we define flourishing as a life free from adversity and trials, a life marked with comfort and ease, where pretty much everything is going my way. But that's not how God defines flourishing. It's not how he defines growth. No, in Scripture, flourishing and true growth, please hear me, is being made into the image and likeness of Christ. The person who is flourishing is the person being conformed and displaying the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, faith, true growth happens when God the Father uses his pruning shears to cut away our sinful actions and thinking. Growth takes place when God sovereignly allows trials and hardships in our lives. The question is, do we receive it as such? Do we allow whatever hardship we are experiencing to make us, please hear me, deepen our trust and submission to God and His Word? Or do we, what I can often do at times, do we fight and get angry to my shame because things aren't going the way I would like them to go? Here's, here's the question that I just really want to challenge us as a church. And that is, how deep are we going to allow God's rule to invade our lives? That is, how deeply will we submit to him? Are we just going to submit on superficial things? Or are we going to allow him, his rule, to invade my deepest longing and desires, your deepest longing and desires? And oftentimes, it's hardest to do that when it seems like submitting to God and His Word makes no sense. Or when it seems like there's no hope. Or it seems like I don't know how any good is going to come out of it. I know what God's Word calls me to do. I know what His Word says, but I just don't see how. 
Those are the moments God wants us to lean in and to allow his rule to take place so we can, please hear me, grow and flourish. God brings about growth and often the means he uses to accomplish such growth are trials of various kinds. And this is what I want to say, faith. Let us receive these trials of various kinds as rain from heaven that is meant to sprout the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Let us receive these as rain from heaven that is meant to sprout the fruit of righteousness in our lives. Then finally, Submit to God's king because he brings judgment. And look at verses 6 and 7. Again, the contrast based on the gardening, weeding analogy, it's not between a good and a bad ruler, it's between the responses of two people groups. Because verse 6, but worthless men or rebellious men are like those that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron, and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. When my family moved from the Chicagoland area out to the San Diego area, we moved into a house that had a bunch of rose bushes. I was about 10 years old at the time, and once we got moved in and settled in, my dad charged me to take care of these rose bushes, and there are tons of them. Well, after only living there for a couple months, early on we discovered we had to remove one of those rose bushes. And my dad tasked me to do it. And when I did, I wasn't wearing any gloves. And you know what happened? My hands bled. You see, to remove that rose bush, I not only needed gloves, but I needed a tool. I, to move, I actually needed a weapon. Notice what this passage says about those who rebel against God's king. It says God will take up arms. He's not going to grab them like I grabbed those rose bushes without anything in hand. No, with a rod of iron and a spear, he's going to take them and pitch them so they will be consumed by fire. Faith, this is judgment. This is judgment language. And here's the truth I need to speak to all of us in love, and that is, in our natural state, that's precisely what you and me deserve. Please hear me. We don't come into this world neutral towards God. No, the Bible makes it very clear. We come into this world as his enemy, choosing to live for ourselves rather than our creator. In many ways, we commit cosmic treason by trying to overthrow God's rightful rule in our lives. And you know what? Scripture makes it very plain, very plain for us to understand that our sin earns us God's eternal judgment in hell. You see, friend, due to our sinful rebellion, all of us are doomed for the judgment I just read. But friend, it doesn't have to be. You know why? Because God has made provision for your sin 
through David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Notice what David says there in verse 5. David says his house is right with God. Now, come on now. How can David say that, especially after all the failures we've read about David and his sons? You know why David can say this? He can only say it because of God's everlasting covenant. You see, David's house is right with God, not because it always acts in a right way. It does not. No, it is right with God because of God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. And as the rest of Scripture makes clear, as you just keep reading, none of David's descendants rule in righteousness. Indeed, all of Israel's kings fail. Which means, in order for God's saving promises to come to pass, in order for you and I to be saved from the judgment that is owed us for our sin, that means this, faith, please hear me, it means God himself needs to provide a faithful, covenant-keeping Davidic king. And that's precisely what God has done in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, as I've been alluding to and hinting at all this morning, Jesus Christ is the righteous king David is speaking about in this passage. And the good news of Scripture, consider this. Consider this. The good news of Scripture is that Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God's judgment, his judging spear on the cross so, friend, you and I could be forgiven of our cold-hearted rebellion against God. Jesus Christ lived the perfect, law-keeping life you and I have failed to live. Jesus Christ feared the Lord when you and I have not. And then on the cross, Jesus, this perfect, righteous ruler, who committed no sin, went to the cross willingly and received and bore on himself the judgment you and I are owed for our sin. Then three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. Friend, please hear me. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming for each person here in this room. And the only hope you have to escape that judgment is by putting all your trust and confidence in the provision of God's righteous ruler, his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, have you done that? Have you gone all in, forsaking your own righteousness to save you, and instead trusting the perfect righteousness of Jesus and his work on the cross to save you. If not, let today be the day of salvation for you. Receive the, eternal, the, the gift of eternal life by faith. As we've talked about before, there's no secret handshake, there's no hocus-pocus magical words, no salvation comes to those who in their heart and mind, and they confess with their mouth that, God, I am incapable of saving myself. I go all in trusting Jesus and Jesus alone to save me. Friend, have you done that? And for those of you who have, 
let us continue to deepen our joyful submission to God in all areas of our life. Let us receive Christ with thanks as the rightful ruler over every longing and desire. So when the rain of hardships come, let us rejoice as James says, knowing that God intends to use that rain to grow us more into the likeness of Christ. For it is when we are most like our Savior that we are truly flourishing. Amen? Let's pray.